Hey, we're in 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. Uh, in case you're new or you just starting off with us, we are walking through uh, the Samuels, the Kings, uh, the Chronicles. We'll be going through this for a while. Um, our hope is to see the gospel in the Old Testament, and our hope is to really get familiar with just the Old Testament. Uh, these stories bring us hope. They bring us guidance. Uh, we believe that God so often speaks through different stories and narratives, and we believe that we can find the person of Jesus so often uh, in the story of the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And so we actually, last week, if you're with us, just to catch you up, if you remember, Samuel gave like a farewell address. Samuel is that prophet from a little kid called out by God. He's a prophet to the nation of Israel. I mean, he's basically the modern-day Moses. If you remember, the people are begging for a king. We want a king. They get a king. His name is Saul. He was just anointed and declared king in like four different ways that happens. But in chapter 12, it's Samuel basically saying, I love you guys. Goodbye. Follow Jesus. Keep your, follow God. Keep your eyes on him. Uh, don't get sidetracked. The king will fail you. And it's basically like a farewell address to say, don't lose sight of what matters. And that is a king will never satisfy you, but God will satisfy you. So it ends. Chapter 12 was just a farewell address. That was it. So Samuel just anointed king or Saul just anointed king. And here in chapter 13, he immediately falls, and God takes away the kingdom from him. All right, it didn't last very long. And I'm pointing this out because you'll still see King Saul for a while. God basically says, the kingdom will no longer be to you or to your heir. I'm taking the kingdom from you. Now, we'll see this clearly shared again in chapter 15. But this is kind of that, that it, it, it's the end. It's the beginning and the end. Like, he's the king. He's probably been a king for a few years now. But immediately, we see by his decisions, God's like, you can't be king anymore. So uh, the title today is simply how to not destroy your life. All right. How to not ruin your life. Um, honestly, there is a lot here. There's a lot we can learn from him. He made a lot of, a lot of tragic mistakes uh, along his, his, his journey. And uh, I just want to learn from this because I, if you've made bad choices, which we all have, how do we not let those, those choices kind of have a snowball effect where you make some small bad choices, small bad choices, and it grows and grows and grows and grows. And I think what we see here in Saul is just, okay, I want to learn from him and how not to live, how not to ruin my life, how not to destroy my life. So uh, we're going to read chapter 13, but there's a lot. So why don't we just pray? Can we do that? Can we pray? Just invite the Lord to speak and to move. Father, we just want to thank you. I want to thank you so much that you speak, that God, you are not in heaven silent. You're not, you're not far but God, you are near. You are that true king we long for. God, I just ask that, um, and I know in all of our lives, we can so relate to Saul because we have blown it. We have failed epically. And Jesus, we just want to thank you in advance that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, help us to learn from Saul who did not repent, who made excuses, who blame shifted. God, help us to, to learn from him. Help us to respond humbly, not self-righteously. God, I just ask that um, you would just do something in our hearts today. That you would um, just humble the proud. And God, that you'd elevate the humble. And Lord, we look to you now. We need you, Jesus, in just your precious name. Amen. Oscar Wilde wrote a very well-known and famous novel called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Maybe you did like a project or a book report on this in high school or college. Maybe you remember this. Maybe you don't. It's okay. Um, I had to like refresh my mind on this a bit. But if you're familiar with the story, there is a young, beautiful, handsome man named Dorian Gray who a friend paints a, he paints a picture of him. It's a portrait of himself. 
And basically, he wishes to himself that he could forever look like that portrait. He could forever stay young. And that whatever happened to him, it just happened to the portrait instead. But little does he know, it's not just that the portrait would age, but just also the sinister things that he says and does and how he conducts himself, how he lives his life, it began to reflect into that portrait. It's a really fascinating idea. But if you read the stories that goes on, you know, you see like people are kind of amazed, like, wow, he looks so youthful. Like he, he, and then as he remained youthful, that picture was aging. But you see that over time, if he said like a cruel comment, the picture would change or morph. And the picture would kind of have like a smile that would just kind of, you know, be like a sinister looking smile. Or if he saw someone he hated, his eyes in the picture like changed these eyes of rage. Like over time, you see that he eventually, Dorian Gray, murders someone. And in the picture, his hands are like stained with blood. And he's so eventually just frustrated by looking at this picture. He sees the picture over time. He's disgusting. It's evil. It's vile. He hates to look at that picture. Even though he looks young, the picture looks gross. It's a reflection of his inner man. It's a reflection of his heart. So he eventually takes a knife and like stabs the picture. And then a servant or a friend basically finds him up in the attic with a picture gone and a knife in his own heart. By him stabbing it, it happened to him. Whatever happened to the frame happened to him. And here was the idea. His inner man was revealed. The picture did not create this evil. It just revealed his evil heart. And I think for us, obviously, the point of this is we see in our own lives, if our inner man could be revealed, what would be seen? It would be a terrifying thing sometimes you think about it. If our inner heart, if our inner man could be seen, we'd probably have a similar picture like Dorian Gray. You go, oh, it's not, it's not as good looking. Because here's the idea. Saul was the Dorian Gray of his day. Saul was the handsome beautiful. He's a tall, he's taller than everyone, the head and shoulder taller than everyone else. He's the people's choice. And yet if his heart could be seen or reflected, it was really vile. It was really far from God. And we see this really developed. And I want to, I want you to understand, like there was such a hope for Saul. I think about this. We're only in chapter 13 and chapter 11. He's like hailed as the King. Chapter 12 is the farewell address and it's already done. Chapter 13. Like, yes, we'll see him for many more years. He remains King for about 20 more years. But basically at this point in time, the kingdom's taken away from him. And I want you to see, because there's such a hope for Saul, like, yes, this is the one. He will save us from our enemies. There were such high hopes for him. If you remember, this is really interesting. In chapter 11, he defeated the guy named Nahash. Nahash in Hebrew meant snake. He crushed the snake. You could almost feel what that would mean prophetically for the people of Israel. There was that prophecy in Genesis 3. That the one that would come from Eve, like the Messiah, would crush the head of the snake. And by so doing, that his heel would be bruised. And you can see, like, here's this guy. His name literally means snake. He's crushed by Saul. And it's like, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one who will crush the head of the snake. There are such high hopes for him. But instead of being um, that messianic figure, he was really just another example of Adam. He's another example of just a man who pursued his own interests. And so as we read chapter 13, here's how, as I read this, this is so sad. You kind of see it it grow, his sin, his justification of his sin, his desires. You see it just kind of grow. So again, the title is How to Not Destroy Your Life. Uh, The three points are, and here's the first point. We're going to say, don't allow pride and impatience to cloud your judgment. Don't allow pride and impatience cloud your judgment. This is really the beginning of his downfall. We see pride and impatience cloud his decision-making. If you are going to destroy your life, there's going to be pride and impatience. So let's read. It's verse 1. Kind of pick up in the first point. Verse 1. It says, Saul, Saul lived for one year and then became king. 
I'll explain this in a second. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tents. Just so you know, um, since he was uh, lived for one year, then became king. In the earliest manuscripts that we have, uh, it seems as if it, the Hebrew is kind of faded. And so it's debated of like, what is it actually saying? How many years? How old is he? We know according to Paul, the apostle, who was Saul, Saul became Paul. We know in Acts 13 that this King Saul reigned for 42 years. But the idea is how old was he when he became king? We don't know. How many years was he reigning at this point in time? We're not sure. It's kind of disputed. Uh, here's what John MacArthur says I find helpful, just to kind of bring some side note to this. He says, probably the best reconstruction of verse 1 is Saul was 1 and perhaps 30 years old when he began to reign. So the idea is it's probably saying he's 31 years old when he began to reign. That's probably the right interpretation, but it's just kind of disputed. I don't think the timeline matters too much. We know he reigned for 42 years. We know it's not soon after he's anointed king that this story takes place and his kingdom falls apart. We'll just keep going. Verse three, it says, Jonathan, listen to this, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, heard it said that Saul defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. I want you to see right away what happens. His son, Jonathan. So by the way, Jonathan is introduced for the very first time. We're not told he's a son until like, I think verse 16. But Jonathan is introduced, Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, I cannot wait to talk about him. He's mentioned a lot. He becomes best friends with David. You know, the one who's kind of in a competition with Saul's throne. Uh, I love Jonathan. I love who he is. We'll see him more next week. But it's interesting that here's Saul, and he actually has a really good son. He has a really godly son. He has a son who loves God. His name is Jonathan. It's bizarre, because we talk about this. Samuel, a great prophet, a great guy. Samuel's kids don't walk with God. Here's Saul, who doesn't walk with God, and yet his kids do. But we're going to read more about Jonathan. We're going to see kind of how he plays out. But I love this figure. But notice this. Jonathan, it says, who defeated the garrison? Who, who defeated the Philistines? Who? Jonathan. Who blew the trumpet? Saul. What do people say? Saul defeated the Philistines right away. Obviously, we see Saul taking credit for his son's work. Now, this is just fascinating to me. It is weird, right? Like, if you had a son and he was in the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl, and you like tweeted, I won the Super Bowl. They're like, what are you talking about? That's like what he did. Doesn't make sense. He's taking credit. But the people, he, he blew the horn. The idea behind that was they probably were both, in a sense, trying to fight the Philistines. Whoever blows the horn defeated him. His son defeats him. He blows the horn. He literally toots his own horn. I think that's where this expression comes from. I don't know. That's my, that's all that can make sense to me. But he toots his own horn and they're like, wow, Saul did it. Saul defeated the Philistines. Here, here's what we see. It honestly just begins with pride. It's crazy how pride works. It's just so subtle, right? Like, you know, hey, we're working together. Like, we don't, shouldn't we both get credit? I am the king. I mean, wouldn't it be I get the victory? But it's crazy. It's the people automatically praise him. His son did it. He doesn't correct them. There's like, yeah, I did this. I want to say this. We got to be aware of pride. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book, a really well-known book called Mere Christianity. I want to encourage you to read it. In one of his chapters, I think it's chapter eight, it's just called, this chapter is just called The Great Sin. That's what it's called. And it's just a chapter on pride. Basically saying the greatest, the sin behind all sins is pride. It is bizarre because we do live in a point in time where pride is like a virtue. Pride, we have pride month. Pride is something that's celebrated. We've almost taken 
this this character flaw, fault and flaw, and we've made it a virtue. We got to beware of pride. Pride is so subtle. It's so sneaky. I love what one author said about this. He says, Jonathan, um, he says the limb that bears the fruit always hangs the lowest. Here's the idea. If you are living a fruitful life, if the tree branch is bearing a lot of fruit, it's going to hang low. If you're living a fruitful life, there's no need to elevate yourself. If you have a fruitful life, it's like that tree limb bears low. There's, there's humility there. If, if you have a fruitful way of living, there should be humility attached to it. It's the one that has no fruit that needs to exalt itself, that needs to be seen. The pride is so sneaky the way it works. Again, it is so subtle. Because it could just be a thought. Pride is not just, you know, thinking less of yourself. I love how Warren Wearsby said that. He goes, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Sometimes pride can be this weird way. It's going like, to be self-deprecating. Like you make yourself look bad. I'm like, oh no, stop, stop. I'm not great. So pride is just so weird. It comes in so many different shapes and sizes. I want to just suggest to you that the beginning of King Saul's downfall is his pride. And we have to be aware. I mean, this is how we see this constantly just throughout scripture. It's this thought of self, of just being really important, really necessary. Tim Keller said this. He says, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It's silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing. I think it is that. It's just that thing, it's just silently and slowly kills you without you knowing. You know, we're told in James 4 that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It just starts off simple, not a big deal, right? We're working together. I have 2,000 troops, you have 1,000 troops, son. That's like literally what happened. And his son defeats them. He's, he toots the horn, the people praise that Saul did it. It might not seem like a big, big deal, but again, pride usually doesn't come across that way. It's just subtle. It's that silent killer. We'll keep reading. We'll keep going. Here's what it says in verse 5. Uh, and the Philistines, they mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. Verse eight, listen to this. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And listen, and he, Saul, offered the burnt offering. I want you to hear, this is the downfall of, of Saul. Saul goes, oh, I'm supposed to meet Samuel here. It's been seven days. He's not here. We need, before we go into battle, we need to kind of, you know, offer this offering to God. I'll do it. I'm the king, but I'll become the priest. I'm the king, but I'm going to offer the burnt offering. Now, that was no, no. It was very clear that the king was not to participate in the priestly duty. Now, I'm bringing this up because this is, this is significant. This is his downfall. He basically grew impatient with God. I, I think this is so often, God so often, I think, will make us wait. And when we wait, we think maybe God is mad at us. Why would God make us wait? Why does he do that? I shouldn't wait. It's been seven days we agreed on this. It's been seven days. I actually love what verse 10 says, because look at verse 10 really quick. He says, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. It's been seven days, just like Samuel said. As soon as he's done offering the burnt offering, Samuel comes up and says, hey, what's, what are you doing? Like, what's up? Like, he literally missed it by minutes. I want you to see his impatience. I want you to say that he was not able to wait. He was not able to wait. 
Listen, waiting is a key component of the Christian life. There's no getting away from it. We're just told, constantly told to wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart. Those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait, wait upon the Lord. There's constantly this idea of wait. Wait on the Lord. The righteous will wait on the Lord. What did he do? He's like, waited seven days. He got minutes away. Because as soon as he finishes, that's when Samuel comes up. I can't imagine that. And I love that he goes to him. Notice that. He goes, to, hey, Samuel, what's up, man? Like, it's almost like he got caught in a sin. And rather than insulting guilt and shame, he's like, let me just embrace it. It's like if my son, like, steals, like, ice cream from the fridge, which he has done. And I find him. And he's like, oh, dad, it's ice cream. Let's just pray over the ice cream so we can eat it together. Like, no, I'm sorry. Like, he's trying to, like, find a way to make this look good. And it's, it's just interesting. This is what he does. And I, I do want you to see that it's his impatience. It was his pride. He wasn't able to wait. I, I do think there's something about waiting. Why does God have us wait? That is a question I, I, I like wrestle with. That's a question I try to understand. Like, God, why is it so often that you want us to wait? I don't know if there's one clean, simple answer. As much as God does so much in waiting, God does strengthen your heart in the midst of waiting. God does, he creates endurance and perseverance and resilience as we wait. God does so much when we wait, but he calls us to wait. Again, it was seven days and Samuel showed up immediately after. But he just was not able to wait. I love what Lamentations 3 says. Lamentations 3 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. There's just something good about waiting, waiting on the Lord. You could imagine the anxiety that come with it. Like, if you read how it, he says it in verse 8, and you read, like, what he's walking through. The people are beginning to scatter. They're losing confidence. He feels like this is something he needs to do at this point in time. Like, I need to do this. This is good. This is spiritual. If I do this, it is really interesting how verse nine says, um, it just says, so Saul brings, he burnt the burnt offering tear to me and the peace offering. And he just offered the burnt offering. He's just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take it into my own hands. There's something, again, when we take it into our own hands, like I don't, I'm not this per, I can't wait. I know I should be waiting for the Lord, but I need to do this. I want to take this into my own hands. I can do this. We don't really need Samuel. And this is the start of his downfall. Now, again, this is a big deal. It's the king offering a burnt offering. It's the king becoming a priest. This is a big no-no. We see this in 2 Chronicles 26, a guy named Uzziah. He actually tried to participate in a priestly like uh, service, and he breaks out in leprosy. God was very clear. Like, no, no, the kings are not supposed to be priests. The priests are not supposed to be kings. And here's what's interesting to me. There's only one person, we're told, in Scripture that was supposed to be a priest and king. We know that Melchizedek was. Melchizedek was a priest and a king. But we're told in the book of Zechariah that there would be another priest and king one day. And that was not to be Saul. Listen to this. It's fascinating to me. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. We'll have to put the verse up here. It talks about this future priest king. It says, He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Between both offices. This is like an oxymoron. A priest on his throne. But there was one person who's supposed to be the priest on the throne. Who's that person? Jesus. Sunday school answer when you don't know, it's just Jesus, right? Who's the only priest and the only king? Jesus. He is after the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest. He's the king. Saul, you're not Jesus. Isn't that weird? So often we want to be God. So often we want to be the messianic figure. We want to be the one. God's like, no, no, you're not the priest king. You're not the one who saves. You're not the one who offers the sacrifice. That's not your role here. And he's immediately called out for that. And I want to say this, I really do think that, like, the beginning, you could say, of that path of just self-destruction, how not to destroy your life, don't be filled with pride, and don't get impatient. 
if you're in a season again right now where God's like, wait, I know, I know you want to explore that door. I know that you've been dating that person for a while. I know that you think you deserve this. I know that you think you're allowed to give yourself over to that sexually because you're committed at this point in time. But God is constantly asking us to wait. Wait for the appointed time. Wait for whether in that case marriage. Wait for the time that I open the door. Wait. There's this idea of waiting because God does so much and builds so much character in waiting. And that's what he's trying to do with, with Sam or with, with Saul. He's saying, wait, you missed it. You missed it by minutes. What a, what a terrible thing to go, oh, I was minutes away. Like, it's crazy how the Lord's like, how far can you go in being patient? God's like, go further than that. You think this is the end? Go further. There's a further end you have. Wait. So we see the first part was he was impatient and he was full of pride. Number two, how to not destroy your life. We'll keep going uh, in verse 10 to 11. Uh, don't allow deception and disobedience to be explained away. Don't allow deception and disobedience to be explained away. Look what he does. We'll pick up again verse 10. It says, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Verse 11, Samuel said, what, uh, what have you done? And Saul said, uh, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So, listen to this. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Oh, we're still going to do this. I want you to notice what he's doing. I love that, first of all, uh, when Samuel comes to him, this is just such a, I don't know, we're sometimes too afraid, like we beat around the bush sometimes. He's just so bold. He's like, what have you done? Could be more clear. What have you done? And what does he do? Does he say, oh, I've sinned. I've sinned. I know I'm, as a king, I'm not supposed to. What does he do? Is, hey, listen, you weren't here at the appointed time, minutes away. You weren't here. The people are beginning to scatter. The Philistines are gathered up. I mean, right away, he's blaming the people. He's blaming Samuel himself. He's immediately blame shifting. I mean, this is what we do. What do you do when you're confronted with sin? When you sin, what do you do? When someone's like, what have you done? What are you doing? Like, ah, oh, God, you have no idea. It's, it's been so hard. You know, I've just been so lonely. I'm so tired. It's really interesting how he's just blame shifting right away. That is so what we do. I mean, do you not get like remnants of the book of Genesis in this? When God is like, hey, Adam, Adam, where are you? Where are you? What have you done? And he's like, well, the woman whom you gave me, there's like two things. He blames the woman and God. It's like the woman gave me this and the woman, you gave me the woman. So I can't really blame me. And this is what he's doing. It's the same thing. He's like, well, you weren't here. The Philistines gathered. The people are scattered. He goes, I force myself. It's crazy how a life of self-destruction begins with self-deception. Notice this. He is justifying his sin. He is justifying his sin. We are really good at justifying our sin. I don't, I don't know. It's just bizarre how all of us have within our hearts these little mini lawyers that can argue and make a case for why we do what we do. Like, we're really good. Like, we're really good at just saying, but God, you have no idea that, that the position I was in, if you were in this spot, other people have done this, and they did far worse. We're really good at having these little mini lawyers, like, rise up, and you get all defensive. And I, I see this, that's how I wrote down, the path of self-destruction often begins with self-deception. I think so often we're, we're, we're deceived. We're self-deceived. We, we find ways to justify our decision-making. I love how John put it in 1 John 1, 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's as simple as that. Hey, you say you have fellowship with me, but you're walking in darkness. So you're, you're lying. You're just not practicing the truth. Saul, you think you're doing something good. You for I forced myself to do this. He's like, I needed to do this. This is the only option, God. Like you forced my hand. Like Samuel, you forced my hand. You were here. I had a, this was for the good of the people. 
It's crazy how people will do evil things so often in life because they think there's a good outcome. Actually, Romans 3.8 says that very thing, but it, it points out the idea. It says, let us do evil that good may come. This is what Saul is doing. I might do a necessary, this is a necessary evil, but it will be for the good of the people. So, that's how, so often we make decisions that way. This might be evil, but it might be good later. No, that is, that is not how the, the church of God behaves. That's not how believers behave. That is just not us. We're not gonna do evil that good may come. That's what he did. I'm gonna do evil, I'm gonna offer an offering, but it's for the good of the people. It's for us. Again, I just wanna be really clear. There's something really interesting about how all of us are really, really, really good at convincing ourselves that even though when we sin, we're doing something we need to do. I wanna say like, give that up. Let the Samuels confront you. Let them come to you and say, what have you done? What are you doing? See, we have to have a different response. I truly believe, I truly believe if we read something different in verse 11 and 12, if we read that Samuel came to him and says, what have you done? And he said, I have sinned before you and before God and I repent of my sins and dust. I, I really do believe if we read that, there would have been granted repentance and grace to him. We saw that with Hezekiah. Hezekiah sinned greatly before God. A prophet goes and says, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Hezekiah repents, weeps, is fasting, and he goes, God has granted you repentance. Because there is this idea is that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. There is this idea if you confess your sins, he, will, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. I really do believe the story of Saul would have been much different. But what does he do? He does not repent. He, all he does is make excuses. And this is one of those things for us where like, when you are confronted with sin, what do you do? Do you blame shift? Do you give an argument? Are you self-deceived? How do we respond to it? He responds the way we all do. You know, Jesus said something really interesting about the Pharisees. Listen to this in Luke 16. He says to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. That is just one of those statements that just stands out, like stings your soul. Hey, you're one of those. You justify, you can justify all of your decisions before men, but God knows your heart. At the end of the day, it's funny how often we say that phrase, right? I feel like we, I hear Christians say that all the time. It's like, you know, I know I did this and I did that and I should have done that, but God knows my heart. And it's like, yeah. He does. It's filthy, wicked. What are you talking about? Like we use it like this positive light, but God knows my heart. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, yes, he does. It's disgusting. It's gross. Yes, God knows your heart. Like it's so fun how we use that in like a self-justification way. And this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Hey, you know, men see that word. God sees the inner man. It's what Proverbs 21, 2 says. It says, all man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Is that not so? All man's ways seem, this seems right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. This is what's going on. So verse 13 Keep reading it. it. says, And Samuel said to Saul, listen to what he says, Why have you done foolishly? You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have, had, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Do you see his response? He goes, because of what you've done, the kingdom is now gonna be stripped from you and God is looking for a man after his own heart. Saul, you've been a man after the people's hearts. You see the people scattering. You wanna bring them back together. You are not in pursuit of God's heart. You're in pursuit of the people's hearts. You want more fame and popularity. You wanna play into this position and you've missed it. So now the kingdom's gonna be taken from you. You see, it was his disobedience, obviously, that led to this self-destructive path. We're gonna see this again in chapter 15. We're gonna see Paul or Saul disobey God very clearly. And we're gonna see again, God tell him that his kingdom is gone and it's gonna be taken away from him. But this is the first time we see it. He goes, it's done, your kingdom's over. Now, yes, he will continue to be king, but he's saying your heir will not be king. Jonathan, your son will not be king. There will be a king. 
a king who's after my heart. But he's very clear on this. And I, I do want us to kind of get something. Again, I really do believe if he repented, there would be a different response, but there's zero repentance. And here's what we see. We're told this in Galatians chapter six so clearly. It says, if you sow to the flesh, where of the flesh you will reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit of the spirit, you'll reap life. There is this idea of like, yes, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption or death. If you sow to the spirit, you reap life. There is this idea of like, there are obviously consequences for our decisions. He was not repentant. He's not broken over his sin. He offered a burnt offering that's only reserved for the priests. And so obviously there's consequences for what's going to happen now. And here's that, what ultimately we see. Here's what I want to take my takeaway from this. Like praying through this, reading through this. When I look at Saul and I go, man, if Saul really loved God, if Saul was really a man after God's heart, it wouldn't have been about how can I win this battle? It could be how can I be after the heart of God? It's what Jesus said in John 14, 21. But John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Here's the idea. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. God's like, how do you know? How do you know that you love God? He goes, do you obey me? This is not for you to touch. Don't touch the sacrifice. That's for the priest. Obey that. Okay, it's very clear. This disobedience, it shows you don't really love me, you love the people. You don't love me, you love what the people can do for your ego. And this is what he was, he's after the people's hearts. And God was like, I want to raise up for myself someone after my own heart. And this is that phrase that stands out where we know it's like, there's now this, like we're looking, who is this king that's after God's own heart? And we see this is fulfilled in David. David, obviously, as we'll see in chapter 16, David is that young shepherd boy. We'll see he's the man after God's heart. We'll see this repeated in 2 Samuel 7, this idea that David was a man who was just after the heart of God. David's like, it doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what people say. I'm going to pursue and be after the heart of God. I'm not after my will. I'm not after the people's will. What do the people want? I'm after God. What do you want? I'm after your heart, your desires. What do you want, God? And from this, from this point on, we're on that search for who's the person after God's heart. And we see in David, and obviously it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who Jesus says, hey, Hey, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Saying, I would rather obey you than do what I want. Jesus was ultimately, obviously, the Son of God, who's after the heart of God. And said, I, I also want to obey you. I also want to do what you said. I want to keep your commandments. And we see this fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Here's what we see in verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Can I just say this? I still believe God is seeking out after men and women who are after his heart. God is still looking for people who are after his heart. In Psalm 27, David said, I have set the Lord always before me. The Lord said, seek my face. Then David says, your face, Lord, I will seek. I still believe God is on this hunt for people who just want his heart. Not his hand. What can God do for me? What can God give me? But God is looking for people who are after his heart. It is one of those things where I have to stand back and go, okay, God, what am I after? If you kind of like step back and look at your life and say, God, what am I pursuing? What am I after right now? Like, what is it that I want? Like, there's always something. It's funny how when you, I do like talk to my kids and it's like, like, what are you looking forward to? There's always like something like a few months away, right? It's like, well, we get to go to Disney in a few months or we get to like go do this or meet with this. There's always some, it's like, we can never just kind of be present in the moment. And I see how that carries into our adulthood. Like, oh, I want to go on this next trip. I really want to get out of here. I really want to do, and it's like, we can never just be still be present and be at peace with God. There's always something next. And what I see so often is God's like, I just want people who are after my heart. Like, what do you really long for? What is it that you want? If the Lord will appear to you like he will to Solomon, so you can go, hey, what do you want? 
if God says, what do you want? It's like, I want your heart, God. I just, would that be our first response? I don't know. Like what would come out of my mouth right away? I want your heart. God's like, I'm looking for people who are after my heart. I'm gonna use people who are after my heart. I can't move on from this because this was Saul's downfall. He was not after the heart of God. Saul's downfall was his disobedient, self-deceptive decision-making. He thought he could do it. And I wanna say this, we have to be after the heart of God. But here's the last thing we see. The story ends kind of with this point. This is a really weird way to end, I feel like, this chapter. It's a really bizarre kind of thing that happens next. But I want to read, uh, here's the third point we see. This is how to not destroy your life. The third point is this. Don't give the enemy the upper hand. This is what Saul did. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, we're going to read on. He says, And Samuel rose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gilgal. To Gibeah, a Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with, with them, stayed in Geba, a Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward, I'm just going to call it Oprah. All right. um, Oprah, she's in the Bible, to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Verse 19. The point was, this is a very real battle. They're really surrounded. Verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. What? For the Philistines said, let the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. Verse 20. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel to sharpen it for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third uh, uh, of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for the setting of the goats. Verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there was, listen, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. They had a sword and spear. Verse 23. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. What is going on? All right, Saul gave the enemy the upper hand. This is really interesting. The Philistines were the one who kind of enforced this. Like, hey, uh, we don't like what's happening here. All the blacksmiths will be uh, in Philistia. You want to sharpen your ax or your spear, or your sword, you got to come to us. There was no one that could sharpen the sword. There was no one that could make the sword. They had to go to them. Only two people had a sword. That was Saul and Jonathan. Now, I, I do have to point this out. Basically, they're relying on their resources from the enemy. This happens today in modern day warfare, right? It's almost like, wow, we need this. We have to go to this country. Like, yeah, please come to us. Like, you need this resource? Come to us. We don't want you to have that resource. Don't be self-sustaining. Come to us. So we see this happening then. It's like, wow, no one could have a sword or a spear without going to them and sharpening it. Here's what one author says about this. He says, it's always the way of the enemy to take away your sword. I think this is so profound. It's always the way of the enemy to take away your sword. You see, Saul was not the one that's like, we need to bring it here. We need to develop it here. Everyone needs to have one here. He basically gave the enemy, we're relying on the enemy for our resources. I want to hear some of these phrases. We're relying on the enemy for our resources. So often we look to the world to sharpen our sword. We look to the world to say, what does the world say about this? What is the world's perspective on this? I want to know, I want to form my opinion by going to the enemy. The sword in the scriptures is called the word of God. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. What I love about that is this is our sword. He says the people don't have a sword. We have a sword. 
where to look to it, to fine tune it, to sharpen it, to get to know it. I should know God's word. Like, here's the thing. I've been reading the Bible for like a while now, not that long. Relative, but I mean, I've been reading the Bible pretty consistently since I was like 17, 17 years, right? The idea though is I still have a long way to go. I feel like the more I get to know this, the less I know it. I still feel like I really need to sharpen my sword every single day. And it's crazy how so often the, the church will go to the world. It's like, will you sharpen our sword? Can you help me out with this? Can you kind of develop my worldview on this? If you're not following me, is that we got to stop going to the world to get our resources. I think so often the world informs our opinion more than scripture informs our opinion. I think so often we want to know what is the new leading, again, psychology of the day, the new leading worldview of the day, and let that inform my worldview. We cannot do that. We, here's, I think Christians so often know the world's perspective more than they know their own perspective. We have to sharpen our sword. We have to have a sword. We need it. I wanted to write it this way. Um, this story, in many ways, is a picture of the church's dependence on the world. This is what the story is revealing. You, you depend too much on the enemy. There has to be the side where we have to develop it ourselves. We have to sharpen our own sword. We have to know the word of God. This is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have to know it. We have to be in it. Love it. I'd say make Bible reading a hobby, honestly. We have so many hobbies and weird things in life. You can find a hobby and club for anything. Like find, find a, gr- a club, find a group. It's like, we're going to know the word. It's going to be in us. We're going to sharpen it. You cut me, I'm going to bleed scripture. Like that idea. Like it's going to be so in, just ingrained in who I am. This is what we see. Another way I try to write this is, um, there is a spiritual war and many Christian swords are left dull or perhaps they're completely disarmed. Maybe your, soul is, your sword is dull or you just don't even have a sword. They had to go to the, Philist- the Philistines to either get a sword or sharpen their sword. They gave the enemy the upper hand. We cannot give our enemy, the enemy, Satan himself, an upper hand, meaning we need to know the word of God. Hide it in your heart so you may not sin against him. Put it within you. Love it. Like, I don't think, again, don't feel like I've heard this before. I've studied this before. Even for me, just reading through the, the Samuels again, I'm like, wow, God, you're so good. I've never seen Jesus in this, in this way. I've never seen these references kind of play out this way. It's so beautiful. And I'd say, get to know this. Be in this. Love this. You see, we have someone who, who gave us the word. We have someone who fought the enemy with the word, and that was Jesus. We have the priest and the king who was the burnt offering, who was the offering. We have him. Go to him. Love him. My thing is this, church, today. You will destroy your life if you don't know the word of God. Your life will be absolutely ruined if you do not know this book. Know this book. Saul, Saul ruined his life by giving the enemy the upper hand, by being deceived, by being filled with pride, by being disobedient. Let's learn from Saul. Here's what I want to do. I think the best thing you and I can do so often is just stop and reflect and think on the offering and the sacrifice that satisfies, and his name is Jesus. And so this Sunday, as you came in, you know you hopefully grabbed communion. We're going to take communion. We're going to reflect on the last and final offering for us, his name being Jesus. We're going to thank him, look to him. And I'm just going to ask that uh, the worship team come back up here. And I just want to slow down a bit. And I want us to just close at our time by saying, okay, I want to sharpen my sword in a sense. I want to reflect on the gospel. I want to reflect on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So would you guys do this for me really quick? Would you just bow your head, close your eyes? We're just going to pray. We're going to take communion in just a moment, but I just want to slow down a bit. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you that you've not, again, left us alone. God, we don't want to be impatient and try to take matters into our own hands. We don't want to try to blame shift or give reasons why we disobeyed. God, we don't want to give the enemy the upper hand. Lord, I pray that you would just speak now 
as we just take communion, as we reflect on your son, Jesus, as we reflect on the gospel, God, as we look to you, that you are that, that burnt offering, the offering of all offerings. You are that priest and that king. God, we ask that we could just sit, slow down now and just reflect on you and say, Jesus, we need you. Help us to know you. Help us to know your word. Help us hide it in our hearts. Lord, I just ask that um, we would be more familiar with what your word says than with what the world might throw at us. Lord, let us just know you. Father, we just need you. We come to you in your precious name, Jesus. Listen, um, as you take communion, just know this. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to give thanks. It says they literally gave thanks and broke bread. We just want to give thanks. We want to praise God. We're going to turn this into like a time of worship and prayer. Um, if you are not a believer in Jesus and you want to believe in Jesus, you say, Jesus, you are the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. You're the sacrifice that paid for my sins. Take, eat, and drink freely. If you do not believe in Jesus, there's no need to take communion. Why take something you don't believe in? But I always want to say this. Take, eat, enjoy, celebrate. Celebrate what Christ has done. Reflect on the cross. This is a time for us just to look back and, and learn from this. So take some time. Eat and drink when you're ready. As soon as you guys are done, as soon as we're done with worship, I'll come back up here and pray. But just pray over it. <coughs> worship, stand, sit, whatever you want. We just want to spend some time with the Lord.